0: Good morning, it's a delight to be with you uh, this morning. I have complied with American culture and I donned the typical gear. I would not look like this in the tribe. I would probably have shorts and a T-top and maybe flip-flops on on a Sunday morning uh, because the temperatures are very high there. But uh, Joyce and I do serve with New Tribes Mission. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet, but I work with a non-profit organization. And uh, it's our delight to be with you. When we were here a year ago, we got to address Epic in the evening. And I kind of let off with some things with the kids there. And I thought I might use that as a jump off, off point this morning. I've actually developed a message for you out of Matthew chapter 16. So if you want to turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 16. Just before I came up here, my wife gave me a small mint to put in my mouth. That reminded me one time I reached in my coat pocket for one and actually put a button in my mouth and I typically gauge my message length by the duration of time it takes the mint to melt and that button wasn't melting too quickly. So fortunately today I had the right thing. But um, if you think about our American philosophy, what drives and dictates our American philosophy? It's usually from the fact of get all we can as quickly as we can, as long as we can. Think about that because I want to contrast that a little bit with you this morning about some tribal cultural aspects. But you know, we come to church, we gather for perhaps an hour or two on a Sunday morning, and sometimes different things take place with us. We may have had a late night, we may have not gotten the proper rest that we needed. We show up for church and we become drowsy or we're distracted by things, we lose our attention. I have even heard it told of a pastor once seeing an individual trimming their toenails during the service. Has that ever happened here? I hope not. But uh, with our tribal people, it's a little bit different. Time does not dictate their lives. Uh, When they gather for church, it's not for just an hour or an hour and a quarter. Services can go for two to six hours or longer. Think about that. Two to six hour service with many speakers. They'll sit for hours because they have nowhere to go. They have nothing to do, so they enjoy the fellowship that they have. Their philosophy of life is survival. They live deep, deep in the jungle. And those people have a whole different view than we do. Now, I have to tell you, when we gather with them for worship, it's a little difficult for me sitting on a cupped board floor. Sitting on a board floor is one thing, but when it has cupped boards, it's interesting. It makes certain parts of your anatomy go to sleep. I have been numb up to my armpits. And let me tell you, when you stand up and begin to walk, you look a little strange. You know, you kind of stumble and fall everywhere. But the interesting thing about these people is they don't fall asleep in their churches. There are distractions. There are flies buzzing around your head. And then the dogs and the pigs and the chickens come through and the babies are crying. And on and on it goes. And and you're distracted sometimes even in the language, a language that had 18 vowels and sometimes getting lost uh, in the speaker uh, moving forward. But you know, there's a tribe in Papua New Guinea that people do not fall asleep in their services. What they do, typically in that church, and why they have this, I have no idea, but the men typically sit on this side, on the floor, and the women typically sit on that side. That's the way they designated it. It has nothing to do with an element of American culture that some churches do that. But in the very rear of the church, hunker down, and it could be a room this size with perhaps 600 people packed in. Think of packing 600 people in your auditorium here, sitting on the floor. And one of the elders is in the back and he's hunkered down and he pays close attention to the message as well as the people. And what he has brought with him, and I brought one with me this morning, is he has brought his wife's digging stick. A woman would use this stick to go out and dig up perhaps an acre of jungle, hunkered down and digging with that. Ladies, you want to have an experience planting a garden? Get you one of these. But he'll sit in the back. And he'll watch and if someone begins to nod off, he just works his way quietly up through the congregation and he gets up to him, and he takes that stick and he snaps it right over the top of their head. Pastor John, you want to sit in the back today? <laughs> a little bit different, isn't it? Our cultures are quite different and there's a lot that we can learn in comparing our different cultures. Um, our American roots go deep, and I want to explore some things that I spoke with the kids at Epic about the last time. I remember back in high school, you know, American people were always focused on ourselves—who we are, what we do, where we go—and I remember in high school in biology in ninth grade we were studying chickadees. And like my word, why are we studying chickadees? Everyone else was getting to dissect frogs, and we're studying chickadees. Well, it so happened that our teacher had chickadees for pets. And we had to learn about a variety of species of chickadees. We had to know their anatomy, uh, the way they were, their their physical well-being. And on the day of the test, the teacher told us she was going to bring in one of the three species of chickadees that we studied about, and that would be our test. On the day of the test, she had a cage in the front of the room, and it had a blanket over it. And she said, Beneath this cage is one of the three species of chickadees that I've taught you about. I'm going to pull the blanket up far enough so that you can see the feet and the legs. And by looking at the feet and the legs of this chickadee, you are going to have to identify which one it is. I'm thinking, good grief, you know. We if you knew the material, you passed the test. There was one boy in our class, he was a bit of a wisecracker. He got frustrated with it and he stormed up and got out the room, going out the door. The teacher said, Where are you going? Who do you think you are, leaving the class like this? This is no joke. He pulled his pant leg up and he said, who do I look like? <laughs> Guess where he went? <laughs> he, he went to the principal's office. But I want to address you with some questions that I asked the kids when I was here the last time. When you meet an individual for the first time, what do you do? What do you do when you meet someone for the very first time? I want interaction here. You can shout it out. Shake hands. Did I hear that? We shake hands, don't we? When we meet someone for the first time, we come down and we shake their hand. Good to meet you. Okay, what are some of the other things that we would ask of those individuals? Your name. Oh, by the way, I did tell the kids that evening when I was with them, there is a culture in this world that has a handshake and the way they greet, well, it's not really a handshake. It's a greeting. They blow their nose in their hand. Okay, you like that? And then they rub it in your hair. You want to try this? okay here we go <laughs> 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 he would do it too wouldn't he <laughs> now we look at that and we say that's very strange you know why in the world would you do that but you do get to do it to one another that same people look at us and they see us take a handkerchief out of our pocket and what do we do with it we take a handkerchief and we <clears throat> we blow our nose in it now I grant you this is cultural you watch anybody who ever uses a tissue or a handkerchief before they put it away you know what they do Why do we do that? Why do we look at it? It's part of our culture. I don't know. I don't have an answer for it. But those are just some of the differences. Now, what's some of the other things that we do when we meet one another? We might ask their name. What else? Where are you from? from? That's important. Why do we want to know where we're from? To To see how we connect. You know, there are some individuals who live in certain communities that want you to know that I live in this community, you know, and you might live in this community but they want to know. It's their prestige based upon where they live. What's some of the other stuff that we would ask? What they do, where they work, okay? Maybe even where they vacation. And you see, as we look at our culture, we see things that centralize around, basically it comes down to two things, our time, how we spend our time, and how we spend our money. We want people to know those two things. And this morning... Uh, I want to launch into the book of Matthew here to explore some things and then come back to this and make a comparison with our tribal culture. But we call these things icebreakers in our culture, uh, letting individuals know who we are, how we spend our time. But Matthew chapter 16 is a unique turning point in the face of Christianity. It makes a statement here, a very foundational statement that is a turning point in the history of Christianity, and I hope you'll see that as we look at this. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. And it says in verse 13, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And here's what they replied in verse 14. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Verse 16 And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art you, Simon Bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell. Shall not prevail against it. You see, Jesus is traveling with his disciples at this time in history through the region of Caesarea Philippi. This area of the world was known for its paganism and its idolatry. And I can't help but imagine as Jesus asks this question of his disciples, who does man say that I am? That he gestures toward that city with all of its statues and its idols and its groves for paganism and idol worship. He gestures toward that and says, who do men say that I am? That word men there is a generic word for mankind in general, anthropos. And he's asking the people, uh, what is, he's asking the disciples, what is the mind of the people? How do they perceive me? Now you have to understand these people had the writings of the prophets that foretold there was this coming Redeemer, this Savior of the world that would be coming. And Jesus was asking to see if these people had grasped an understanding of his plan for the ages. He knew that he would experience rejection, as we'll see later in this chapter, that he would be turned away as the promised Messiah. But he was looking for what man's perspective would be. And this morning, as we focus on this uh, text, I want to show you several different perspectives here and then bring that full circle that we can relate to it. But here's how the world perceived Jesus. In reply to his question, who do people say that I am, Verse 14 states their answer that was reiterated by the disciples. They said, well, some think you're you're John the Baptist. Some of them probably have never met John the Baptist. They only heard things about him. So they assumed that perhaps this one was John the Baptist. Uh, Some of them said perhaps uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I wonder what kind of response would we get if we were to go onto the streets of our community and inquire of people, who do you say Jesus is? I'm sure we would get all kinds of responses that would probably shock us. We were just talking the other evening about uh, an interview uh, that took place of people uh, who were asked about the presidential debate this week. They were asked what they thought of the debate two days before it even happened. And people were giving all kinds of reasons about it. The thing didn't even happen. And they were saying they thought it was good, and they thought this point was bad, and on and on it goes. But I wonder what type of responses we would get if we went to the streets and we asked people. Well, this was a public perspective. Jesus was trying to find out how people viewed him. And I think uh, at this point in the history of our Lord, there were many people who knew many things about him, though they didn't know him. But there's also now a personal point of view. Jesus takes this very same question that he asked the disciples in defining, who does mankind say that I am? And he turns and he makes it a personal proposition to the disciples. He, say, but, he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And here it is, they give an answer of who they thought Jesus was. And I think even the disciples answer may have reflected their own perception of who Jesus was not in fully comprehending who he was but Jesus turns this question upon them he was interested in their personal view now I want to deviate from this for a moment and come back to it because I want to make a comparison to some things within the culture of Papua New Guineans when they meet one another for the first time we looked at how we greet one another and the questions that we ask when Papua New Guineans meet one another people that they've not met before there are two focuses that they have The first of those is spiritual, and the second of those is relational. Now when I say spiritual, I'm not speaking from a standpoint that these individuals have an understanding of God's Word. They don't even know God's Word exists. And the spiritual that I'm relating to is in terms of their animistic beliefs, the appeasement of spirits of dead ancestors. When two Papua New Guineans meet for the first time, what they want to know is, how do you please the spirits of your dead ancestors? What do you do to manipulate the spirits so that bad things don't happen to you, so that you don't have to live in fear and bondage? And the guy will say, well, man, I haven't figured it out. You know, I I just don't know what. What do you do? And this guy's like, well, that's why I was asking you. I thought you had it together, and you, you... you know, your clan had figured out how to manipulate the spirits so you're free from this bondage of fear. And they're like, no, we, we just don't know that. And then the next thing that they focus on is how they may be related to one another because that's very important. That's important from the standpoint of if this fella is related to me and we are going into tribal battle, I will call upon his clan to come into battle as an ally with me. Or if I'm buying a bride and I need contributors toward the bride price, I can come to him and ask his clan to be a contributor to the bride price. So in one sense, the fact that their focus is on spiritual thing, even though it's a wrong spiritual thing, and it's focused upon relationship, I think sometimes their meeting has a little more grip to it than what ours does. You know, we always want people to know who we are. We don't want to engage the element of, of an individual's spiritual condition or what their relationship may be with the Lord. So in that sense, those people seem more on target than we are. But it's a matter of perspective. Now let me ask you, if I were to ask you as a congregation, who do you say Pastor John is, what kind of responses would I get? I'm not going to ask for those this morning, okay? Um, someone had asked that question to me one time and someone said that I was a fun guy. Oh, okay, I didn't I didn't realize I was a fun person, but they said I was a fun guy. And then they pulled me aside and they said, we didn't mean a F-U-N-G-U-Y, we meant a F-U-N-G-I. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm fungus, I guess. But what if I were to ask you, who do you say Pastor John is? It would probably be based upon his character, his family upbringing. There would be a variety of things that you would base your judgment of that on. But going back to verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Even though the question was addressed to the the disciples corporately, it was a question they had to answer personally, each one of them. And you know what? No one speaks. There is this stone-cold silence. Surely you would have thought these men knew Jesus. After all, they traveled and ministered together with him for these three years, and uh, they ate with him. But you know what? There was only one of the 12 disciples who made a response to that. And who was that? None other than Peter. Could it be that they really never identified with the Lord, even though they functioned in ministry with him? And what about us? Do we know him, or we just know things about our Lord? And it ends right there. But he says, you. It's a personal pronoun. Who do you say Jesus is? So we saw a public perspective. We saw a personal perspective. Now I want to show you in verse 16, I want to show you a powerful uh, proclamation. Look at verse 16. It says, And Simon Peter answered and said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is a very emphatic and powerful statement. We'll look at that in in a moment. But it's very typical of Peter to always be the very first one to speak. Many times Peter would put his foot in his mouth, and Peter makes this very dramatic statement here when he declares, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I think for the very first time, Peter may have recognized something here when uh, Jesus asked the disciple who the world perceived him to be that Peter saw the question finally from a spiritual perspective when he makes this declaration. But you know, this declaration did not come within himself. Jesus even alludes to this in his question when he states, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? We know God as the great I am, the eternal God. And that's what is referenced in Jesus stating that question. Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? God incarnate. And yet as we read on, we're going to learn something about Peter himself did not put this together on his own. Because look at verse 17. It was a divine revelation. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's declaration that Jesus is a Christ... Identified our Lord as a Redeemer of the world. And you see, Peter didn't put this together because it was a profound statement that was revealed to him by the Father, prompted by the Spirit of God. Look at Jesus' response to this in verse 17. Here's what he says to Peter. He says, blessed are you, and then he calls Peter by his proper name. There's a significance to that. Any of you parents ever have one of your children and you really wanted to get through to them? It was that way with our daughter. When we meant business, it wasn't uh, Jenny, go clean your room. It was Jennifer Marie Hilt, go clean your room now. I mean, we made emphasis with it. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's making an emphasis here. What was the significance of Jesus calling Peter by his proper name? I want to show you that. First, I think the seriousness of the declaration declared or deemed that Jesus would affirm such a truth by calling Peter by his proper name. But secondly, there is this natural phenomenon present in Peter's very own name that drew a parallel with this theme of the statement that was made. Peter's name, his given name was Simon Barjona. Of course, we know him as, as Peter. His name was changed from Uh, Simon to Peter but then if we take him we break down his name Bar-Jonah that was his father's name the Bar means son of so it is Simon or Peter son of Jonah not the Jonah that was swallowed by the whale okay it's a different Jonah here and Jonah transliterated means John so Simon literally was Simon son of John I've often wondered if that's where we got our name Johnson from okay I don't know and you know many times because Peter's name was also translated as stone I've often called Peter Rocky so I nicknamed him Rocky Johnson not really his name but uh, so you can see uh, here Simon son of John and uh, the correlation here was Simon son of John paralleled the fact not in the, the, the stance or the degree of meaning But Jesus was the son of the living God. And even though there was this natural phenomenon present in Peter's own life, he didn't put it together on that basis. Does it add any significance uh, between the declaration of what Simon Peter has said, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and the fact that Peter is the son of someone? No, it doesn't. It wasn't based upon who Peter was or where he lived or what he did or what he had. The blessing was, in fact, that the Father God himself made it clearly evident to Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Peter had nothing to do with the revelation. It was all of God. Now, furthermore, Jesus says, my Father in heaven. So this is evidence of a work of the triune God, that the Spirit of God was involved in bringing about this revelation of truth. We now come to a purposeful plan. We saw a public perspective, a personal point of view, a powerful declaration, a divine revelation. Now we see there is a plan with a purpose. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. We've closed the thought on verse 17 on the fact that Peter is just Peter. That's all he is. Though his name means rock or stone, that is not carried over into verse 18. Jesus now says, I will build my church. Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the church. He says, I will build my church upon this rock. What rock? It goes back to verse 16, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the very foundation of the church. Now, people will say, well, didn't Peter have some significance in the foundation of the church? Peter had significance in bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. You and I would not be sitting here today were it not for the witness of Peter in going to the Gentile world, bringing the gospel to them. Because in Acts 1.8, it says Peter was giving, given the privilege of opening the door of the gospel to the nations. It says there, Jerusalem, Judea. That means right where they were, their immediate area. It talks there about Samaria. That means going out beyond their own community. And then it talks about going to the ends of the earth. That's why we are here. That's why we are gathered for worship today because of Peter's witness bringing the gospel to the Gentile nations. It's come to us. It's come full circle and we're able to gather. As I said, we begin in our own Jerusalem. That could be with our own family, with our own loved ones, our neighbors. Our Samaria could be the outlying communities uh, surrounding your area throughout the state here. And then the uttermost parts of the earth. And you know, sometimes I look at it And I think of the unreached people in the world that still need to hear the gospel. And I think about sometimes we get stuck in Jerusalem. Now, I look at it this way. Have you ever spelled the word Jerusalem? Let's spell it together. J-E-R. What's the next three letters? U-S-A and then L-E-M. And many times we get stuck in our Jerusalem. We don't want to leave the USA to reach those people beyond the reach of the gospel that desperately need to be reached. Uh, for Christ but there's a flip side to Peter's perspective that we need to examine in light of uh, viewing a lost world that can be reached now and in this generation drop down to verse 21 in verse 21 it says from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day this is talking what is going to befall him And as he states this to the disciples, look what Peter does in verse 22. It says, Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And he says, God forbid that this should ever happen to you. But what happens? Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And you see, earlier we saw Peter with a proper perspective and understanding that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of the living God. He acknowledged and knew that truth. And now just a few verses later, when Jesus explains what is going to befall him on the cross, Peter rebukes the Lord and says, God forbid that this should ever happen to you. He loses his focus of vision. He loses his freshness of perspective. And he forgets what was going to have to happen as was foretold by the prophets. And as I began to contemplate this, I thought, you know what? We're exactly the same way. We can gather for worship, we can have our hearts stimulated to biblical truth, we can walk away here with the nuggets of God's word that are going to help us get through the next week, and you know what, we walk through the doors of the church and we begin the week and we forget about those things. One of our furloughs, we came home and I said to Joyce, I said, you know what, we go to beseech people in God's behalf of getting the gospel to people who've never heard. He's commanded us to go. He didn't ask if, if we want to go. He's commanded us as believers to be his witnesses. And I said, I'm going to launch a campaign. I'm going to travel all around America and I'm going to replace the doors in the church. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's something about the doors of a church because When we enter for worship and we leave, we forget about the service element of implementing the things that we learned. And she said, Dave, I don't think it's the doors of the church, it's the hearts of the people. And again, we have to have our hearts stimulated to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter lost his freshness of perspective here, he lost his perception. He was permitting another to influence his vision. And when he did, he was driven by impulse and emotion. Look at Peter when he was driven by impulse and emotion, when he saw our Lord walking on the water and he tried it himself. What happened? He sank. And what about when he was asked if he was associating with Jesus? He denied it. Boy, I tell you, Peter sometimes was a real turncoat. But I've been thinking it's not much different today. You know, many years ago, I was working for a large air conditioning firm. And I came to the point where I thought, you know, I was reaching people at the workplace with the gospel. But as I began to realize that there were people in unreached areas of the world, I thought, there's plenty of people at the workplace that can reach these individuals, and there's plenty of individuals in our church that could fulfill the role of ministry we were doing at that time, but there were so few going to the areas of the world where people had not been reached with the gospel. And why in the world should I remain here and labor for a firm who's making air conditioners, And people are going to perish in hell, and they can't take those air conditioners with them. It's not going to do them any good. That was part of the motivation in the Lord moving us out. You know, mission conferences are a wonderful thing. We gather for having our hearts stimulated toward the needs of the world. And you know, every time your watch ticks, three people slip into eternity. Think of that. Every time your watch ticks, three people slip into eternity. Let me find the math that I did on that. That would be 180 people in a minute slip into eternity multiply that out to the hour 10,800 people perish every hour 259,000 people die daily that is staggering to realize 259,000 people die every day how many of them are going into a Christless eternity without ever having once heard the gospel do these things move you to consider your part of being involved in advancing the gospel to unreached areas of the world I hope so we saw a public perspective, a personal point of view, the powerful uh, proclamation, the divine revelation, the purposeful plan, and then we saw this improper perspective of Peter. But there's one more thing I want you to look at, and that is a promising pursuit. Drop down to verse 24 and 25. It says there in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Then verse 25. For whosoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. What Jesus is saying here is that there is great value in denying ourselves. Our culture teaches us opposite of that. Uh, Giving up our ambition for sake of others, our culture would say, you don't want to do that. You want everything to uh, focus and centralize around yourself. Our tendency, as I said, our philosophy of life is to get all we can as quickly as we can while we can. We're more focused on who we are than who God wants us to be. If you would, turn in your Bible over to Luke chapter 18. I want to illustrate this concept where Jesus talks about if anyone wants to follow him, you must deny yourself because there's some important truth over in Acts chapter, or Luke chapter 18, by the way. Luke chapter 18. It's a story you're probably familiar with. The Pharisee and the tax collector. And I want to read verses 10 through 14. And then I want to illustrate this for you. It says here, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed within himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. They're extortioners, unjust. They're adulterers. They're even like this tax collector. And then this... this, Tax uh, collector or the Pharisee goes on to say, Here's what I do I fast twice a week. He's talking about who he is. I give tithes of all that I possess. And now the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven, it says in verse 13, but it says he struck himself on the chest and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the parable it says, I tell you in verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted that verse there articulates what it says back in uh matthew 16:24, where it says if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and let me explain it from this light how many of you know what the scales of justice are okay you find them in a court of law when i was a kid my mom had a scales on a dining room table it was made of either brass or copper and she had that as a centerpiece on the dining room table. That was the, the decor of the day. And she used to put fake wax fruit on it. It used to bug me. It's like, why don't you put real, real fruit on there? I like, come home from school, grab a piece of fruit, you know. She put this wax stuff on there, you know. I used to like to give it to my sister, the, the troll. and say, here, you eat a piece of this, you know. And she was gullible and she'd bite into it. And Anyhow, the scale was there for a purpose, you know. Mom decorated with it. But now think about a scale. And let's take this, this Pharisee. And let's take the tax collector and put them on the scale. Here's the Pharisee on this side of the scale. He's putting all of his credentials on the scale. Who he is, what he has, what he does. His tithes and all this stuff that he said he does. What happens when you place that on the scale? It's weighed down. But now come over on the other side of the scale. And the publican, it says, uh, or the, um, the tax collector, empties himself of anything that there is. And says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is absolutely nothing to place on the scale because he has emptied himself of anything that he is. And what happens? Who is exalted? The Pharisee, the religious one, or the one who submits to God? And that's exactly what that is illustrating back here in Matthew chapter 16. It says, whosoever will save his life. What that means is to hoard for yourself. If you hoard things for yourself... If your value and your focus system is upon who you are and what you do and what you have, it says you're going to be the one who is going to lose. But whosoever will lose his life, invest it for my sake, is the one who's going to come out in the end. (laughs) Lose our life? Man, none of us want to lose our life. We don't want to give things up. But what it means here is to make an investment. He finds value. He finds purpose for life and he finds reward. It all points to God And who he is, and that is the perspective that God wants each of us to have. Jesus is going to return. There is going to be a day of reckoning for each one of us of what we have done with the witness that he has placed within us to reach other people with the gospel. Look at verse 26 and 27. It says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. What greater way to invest in God's kingdom than to advance the gospel to people who do not know Christ? You can do that within your family. You can do it within your community. But we desperately need people who will pick up and go to the areas of the world where people are still unreached with the gospel. I want to close with an illustration. Some years ago, uh, I had gone to a a baseball game. I had never been to a professional baseball game in my life. We were home on a furlough. We live in York, Pennsylvania. Baltimore is not far away. A friend called up and said, hey, you want to go see the Baltimore Orioles play the Blue Jays? I'm like, yeah, I'll go. I've never been to a game. And I went to that game, and as we stood uh, for them to sing the national anthem and the players were out on the field My mind went back to an article I read many, many years ago in Sports Illustrated. Oklahoma University used to have a football coach by the name of Bud Wilkinson. And he was interviewed by Sports Illustrated. And the question was to the coach, What do you feel football contributes to physical exercise? And you know what his answer was? He said absolutely nothing. And I'm like, What? I got to read this article. What does he mean? Football contributes nothing to. It's a physical exercise. It is a grueling game. It, it's a lot of physical punishment. What in the world is he thinking? It doesn't produce anything of physical exercise. But the way the coach was looking at it was the overall perspective. He was not looking at just the the players and the coaches and everyone that makes up the team, the owners and everything. He was looking at the people in the stands, and he likened it to this. You know, it, you take into perspective the players out on the field of play are those in need of rest and those up in the stands are really the ones that need to exercise. So from that standpoint, football really didn't contribute a whole lot to physical exercise of the overall well-being of that. So here I am, I'm standing in Camden Yards, and the players are out there, and they're singing the National Anthem, and of course I should be paying attention to the National Anthem, but that illustration came to mind, and that evening as I stood there, I thought, you know what, here's another picture of this. Those players out on the field to play, those baseball players out on the field to play that evening, as they stood there with their caps off, caps off in honor of our flag and the national anthem, I thought, you know what? This is a picture to me of the missionaries serving worldwide in advancing the gospel to people who never heard. And we standing here in the stands are like the churches. And we are people equipped. And and able to go to the unreached areas of the world And yet we stand here in the bleachers Those missionaries out on the field of play Really need some rest And those in the stands Really need to get out there And be sharing their faith And that was an impacting experience for me I totally forgot about the baseball game I did have a great time that night But that was such a moving experience for me To realize that And that's where we stand today More than 2,500 people groups in this world Still unreached with the gospel And God gives each one of us the opportunity to have a proper perspective of who Jesus is and having embraced that for our own, then he desires that we might go out and share it with the world. Would you stand with me in prayer and I'll dismiss and we can go on for our day. Father, I thank you for the fact that the gospel, the message of Jesus, the fact that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he resurrected again the third day. I thank you that this message was carried forth by the apostles, and Lord, that through the witness of Peter, it came to the Gentile world. And Lord, even seeing the fact that Peter did not have a proper perspective, at the, or he had a proper perspective, and then deviated from it. Lord, it's so easy for us to receive your truth, and to have our hearts stimulated and challenged by your word, and then to walk away from it, and never be changed. And today, Lord, I pray that this might be a turning point for each of us in realizing and declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we might have a heart's desire to make that truth known to people who need to know it and give them the opportunity of hearing. Lord, I certainly believe that we can hasten your coming as we reach unreached <laughs> people with the gospel because you said one day there will be people, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation surrounding your throne as worshipers. We want to see that happen. And in reaching the people of the world, Lord, we can hasten your coming and see that take place. I thank you for these people, Lord. I ask that you nourish them in the strength of your word, that you send some out. And, Lord, that you make them senders and goers and givers. And, and, uh, Lord, make them prayers as well so that this job of world evangelization can be accomplished. These things I commit to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.